0: Have you ever thought about Christianity and what it is and what it's like? Christianity is like a multifaceted jewel. Its designs are so varied that it has to be viewed from every direction to see its beauty and to see its splendor. And actually offering a full and complete definition of Christianity is not as easy as it sounds on the surface and not as easy as you might think it is. Because you see, Christianity, that is the perfect plan for the redemption of our souls. Christianity is God's own arrangement. For reconciling the world unto Himself. It is designed to subdue the wild and reckless spirit and disposition of men and women. And bring it into harmony with the will of God. So see all of this and much much more is actually involved in this system of grace. That God has provided for us. Can you imagine. The disastrous results. If men and women were suddenly and arbitrarily. Transplanted to heaven that. Home of the souls while. Men and women were still in a carnal and fallen state. We'd be unfit for such associations and it would result in misery and wretchedness. And that kind of arbitrary dealing with men and women would actually be most unkind. God will not thrust us into a state which we do not want. And God will not place us in a position for which we are unprepared. We have to serve our apprenticeship and finish our preparation. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus deals with the motives and dispositions that ought to characterize every one of us. Now, I want you to go back in time a couple of thousand years And I want you to use your sanctified imagination. And by an eye of faith, I want you to visualize the audience Jesus faced preaching that Sermon on the Mount. There's that inner circle. And that's made up of His special friends, people like Peter and Andrew and James and John. And beyond that circle of His special friends stretch acre upon acre of human faces and it is a vast throng of humanity it's a cross section of people in that audience that day beloved there are the successes and there are the failures there are those who have won and those who have been beaten they're both there there are rich and poor they're literate they're illiterate as Jesus Speaks to that crowd that day on that side of the mountain. He's speaking to a microcosm of the world. He's speaking to a world in miniature. But looking into the faces of every person there. Jesus is also able to see into their hearts. And all of them are seeking the same thing. All of them are seeking for a better life. So what does Jesus do that day? He tells them about a better life. He offers them a rule by which they might measure themselves. And according to the rule that Jesus lays out, if we adhere to that rule, we're able to put aside the weaknesses of humanity. And it is then that we emerge as worthy citizens of the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus lays out a very important principle. He tells those listening to Him, That their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. If it doesn't, Jesus says, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And as you read that Sermon on the Mount, over and over you read these words. You have heard it said... But I say unto you, you see the old law, as it was administered by the rabbis in the days of Jesus, that old law was cognizant only of blatant acts. The teaching of Jesus went beyond the act and regulated the motive behind the act. The teachings of Jesus Christ see not only the deed, but the teachings of Jesus probe for the will and the disposition and the attitude that prompted that deed. The law forbids one person to kill another. But Jesus added to that the sin of being angry without cause. Under that old law, personal revenge was forbidden. Yet Jesus made resistance to evil equally sinful. Adultery was something that had always been prohibited. But Jesus goes further and Jesus even condemns the look of lust that precedes adultery. He gives us some of the characteristics of the children of God. In verse 38 he says, You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus tells us there, what our attitude should be toward grievous and aggravated insult. You see, to be slapped with the hand, that's more insulting than being stricken with a fist. And so here what Jesus is doing is contemplating adding insult to injury. And He says we're simply to turn the other cheek. That we're to suffer indignity without retaliation. Now over the years we've heard a lot of jesting and joking and laughter about this commandment. One of my favorite stories is about a man that was always getting into a fight. He was always ready at the drop of the hat to just fight somebody And beat him to a bloody pulp. And he learned about the teachings of Jesus. And some folks began to ridicule him about his Christianity. And there were a group of tough guys that gathered around him one day. They were mocking him and ridiculing him for his Christianity. And one of them said, well, you know, I I read where it says that if somebody hits you on the cheek, that, as, that Christians are supposed to just turn the other one. He said, that's correct. So the guy hauls off and just slaps him right upside the head. He said, now what are you going to do about that? He said, my Bible says that I turned the other cheek. And he turned his head and the guy slapped him again. He said, what are you going to do about that? He said, well, he said, friend, I'm a new Christian. And my Bible doesn't give me any instructions after that. After you hit me on the other cheek. And I'm fixing mop floor up with you. Well, that's really not the attitude Jesus had in mind. But Jesus had in mind the, the concept that we suffer in dignity without retaliation. That passage forbids retaliation. That passage forbids the attitude that we so often have. How many of us have at one time or another had someone harm us either physically or say something about us or, or do something and under our breath I'll tell you one thing I'm going to get even with you if it's the last thing I do. I'll, I'll fess up. I've thought that before. And I can tell that some of you have thought that same thing. And that's what Jesus forbids us to do. And He says, our righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. That old law forbid the retaliation. Jesus' law forbids the attitude of mind to contemplate that retaliation. In verse 40, He said, if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. The cloak was the outer garment that was used by the very poorest classes during that day and time to protect the body against the chilling blasts of winter. It was even used at night for sleeping. And the illustration there is designed that we must be willing to part with more than is even asked of us. But then in verse 41, Jesus says, And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him too. You see, that's what this is all about. When Jesus says our religion has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, He's telling us about the religion of the second mile the Roman government had adopted a practice that originated with the Persians and this was a practice of forcing private citizens into governmental service against their will a government individual a government representative would need transportation to the next community And a citizen would be forced, compelled, to provide the transportation. And that involved interference with their personal affairs. And guess what? That was especially distasteful to the average Jew. It was compulsory. And nobody likes to do something That they're being forced to do. But Jesus says if anybody forces you. To go a mile with him. Go more Jesus said. Go two miles. That is be willing to do twice as much. As is demanded. The religion of the second mile. Now historically there were some things that a person had to do to live in a state of society in this woke world we're living in today some of these things that a person had to do to live in a state of society are becoming very questionable but always before if a person lived in a state of society they had to work or starve they had to care for their family or suffer punishment they had to live civilly or be removed from society they had to work Or they'd lose their job. We called it getting fired. No individual is deserving of commendation who is satisfied to do the bare minimum. You know, I've told you about my stellar career as a student. How that I would go to class in college on the first day of the semester and i would get the syllabus and find out exactly what the bare minimum was that i had to do to pass the course and i'd make sure that i did the bare minimum and pass the course and got my three semester hours of credit guess what i never did get any certificates of commendation and you know people always talk about graduating from college they they graduate cum laude that's some latin word that means with praise or they graduate magna cum laude and that's With much praise. I graduated, thank the Lordy. But anyway, I didn't get any commendations because I just did the bare minimum. No one gets commendation who's satisfied to do the bare minimum. What would you think of a man who measured what he would spend on his family and calculated it down to the last penny of what was necessary to sustain their physical existence. And yet that's exactly what a lot of folks do to determine their amount of activity for the Lord. There's so many folks content to do just what they absolutely must do to be saved and nothing more. Jesus taught that when we do what we ought to do, we're still unprofitable servants. When we have done the bare minimum, the bare minimum requirement and nothing more, we're still unprofitable servants. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 17 and verse 10. When you've done all the things that are commanded you, say, we're unprofitable servants. We've done that which was our duty to do. Here's Philip's translation. When you've done everything you're told to do, you can say, we're not much good as servants because we have only done what we ought to do. Folks, that principle has a lot of very practical applications. Applications. It can apply to our frequency of attendance. It can apply to our offering. It can apply to the service we're willing to do. You see, in our service to the Lord, that first mile, that bare minimum, that's the mile of compulsion. The religion of grace does not ask, what must I do? The religion of grace asks, what is there for me to do? And that's what Jesus is pleading for in our text. He's pleading for the second mile. And that text actually divides people into two classes. Those who serve from compulsion and those who rise to the high plane of glad and voluntary surrender. The first says, I ought. The second says, I shall. The first says, what do I have to do? The other says, what may I do more? We have an imperfect conception of sin. We're aware that as 1 John 3 and 4 teaches, sin is transgression of the law. But that just about exhausts our concept of sin. John also said in 1 John 5 and verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. Unrighteousness is a failure to keep God's commandments. The psalmist writes that in Psalms 119 verse 172. Notice something about these passages. They deal with sin positively and they deal with sin negatively. Sin is doing what's wrong. Sin is also failing to do what's right. We have, over the years, been lulled into a false sense of security with this imperfect conception of sin. We've been led to think by a lot of preachers and teachers and theologians that we're good. We're good simply because we're not bad. That's the view that harmlessness equals holiness. And we've accepted this fallacious view that goodness is a negative quality that exists in the absence of badness. Remember the Pharisee in Luke 18? He thanked God he was not like other men. Oh God, I thank thee I'm not like other men are extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Are you listening? The things that some people have not done would fill a large book. Did you ever try to add up a column of zeros? And what would you end up with? The philosophy that goodness is a negative quality And a negative quality only is the most insidious threat to the future of the church and the security of the saints that there is. You remember what James wrote in James chapter 4 and verse 17? Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is is sin. What's sin? Not doing good. God's laws divide themselves into thou shalt's and thou shalt not's. A person who steals violates God's commandments. But a person that fails to do good also violates God's commandments. Look at those judgment parables. Every judgment parable reveals that the punishment was for somebody that failed to do what was right rather than for somebody that did something that was wicked. You remember the one-talent man of Matthew 25? All Jesus said was the one-talent man was wicked. And it's obvious that Jesus actually uses that in a sense that's foreign to our conception. In our view, a wicked person is What What do we think of someone who's wicked? Well, that's somebody that always does bad things. And measured by a lot of folks in the world today, a lot of folks in the church today, that one-talent man was an admirable character. If fitness for eternal bliss is determined by what someone does not do, you can make a really good case for that guy. He wasn't wasteful. He wasn't a reckless plunger. He didn't embezzle the money that was committed to him. He was not dishonest. There's no evidence that he was a drunkard. And as far as we know, he was not an immoral person. And and as a matter of fact, you could just definitely extend the list. And in fact, if you judge... A good Christian by what they won't do. I've got a cat over there that'd be a really good Christian because there's not anything bad that cat does except claw enormous furniture. But what did Jesus say about that one talent man? He said he was wicked. And he was wicked not because he did anything wrong, but because he did not do what was right. And I have an idea that when the Lord told him that I have an idea that man was insulted with the Lord's appraisal of his case because I have an idea he likely considered himself a brilliant example of a harmless man because if you read the story in Matthew 25 there's an air of self-satisfaction about him when he approached the master he said here take that that is thine I knew you were a hard man so I hid it Or you go to Luke 16 and there's the case of the rich man there. And it depicts in awful detail the dreaded sinfulness of a useless life. That rich man in Luke 16, so far as we know, he did not wrong God, nor did he wrong man. There's no evidence he was a thief, a murderer, or a liar. There was no evidence that he took money from any man or woman. There was no evidence that he wronged anybody. He didn't have to steal for his bread. And not only did he not engage in wrongdoing himself, there's no indication he made others do that either. He didn't forbid the servants to shake out the dainties that fell from his table. And he saw that wretched, wretched beggar named Lazarus at his gate, and he didn't kick him aside, and he didn't call the local constabulary to come and haul him off to jail, and, He didn't sick the dogs on him. Well, what did that rich man do? Nothing. He did absolutely nothing. He had a beggar named Lazarus laid at his gate full of sores. He had the opportunity to do good. And he failed. And he died. And we're told he died, was in torment. And he begged for water to cool his burning tongue. I think I can speak for every one of us sitting here this morning. We all want to live with Jesus. And someday, perhaps very soon for some, the vapor of this life will disappear. And when that time comes the material things of this life will be insignificant. And what's going to be important is whether or not we've lived for the Lord. It's whether or not we've lived in such a way to perpetuate ourselves in the memory of God. Here's what the psalmist's prayer was in Psalm chapter 90 in verse 12. Lord, Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Are you traveling the second mile with the Lord this morning? Are there changes you need to make? Can we help you make those changes? Does something need to be different for Jesus to be the Lord and the Master of all of your life? Can we help you do that? Give us the opportunity as together we stand and while we sing.